We are in the second week of a new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be spending all of June and July on this wonderful letter. It is such a beautiful letter. It's such an inspiring letter. John Calvin said that this was actually his favorite book of the entire Bible. It's one of those books that you can return to again and again for encouragement and guidance. And if you were here last week, you know that we spent the entire sermon talking about Paul who is the author of this letter, the purpose of that sermon was to establish that Paul is a writer who can be trusted. Because it doesn't matter how wonderful his message is, if you don't trust that he knows what he's talking about, then you'll dismiss his message. And so I hope that what that sermon demonstrated is that Paul had a genuine encounter with Christ, and then because he had intellectual integrity, he spent the rest of his life suffering for a truth that he, had, that he had once violently opposed, the truth that Christ is the Messiah. So now that we hopefully have some trust in the person who's writing this letter to us, today we're going to start getting to his message. That's what we'll be doing, in fact, over the next two months. We're going to start today with Paul describing to this church, this church in Ephesus, how they fit in to God's story of salvation. We're going to be reading from chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 and 11 to 14. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words that I speak today would be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. So I'd like to make three points today in my sermon. Number one, what is this story of salvation that Paul describes to the Ephesians. Number two, why was it hard for these Gentiles to accept this story? And number three, why is this story important for us today? So number one, what is this story that Paul tells? In order to understand this, you have to take notice of something that some of you might have already noticed when I was reading this passage today, which is that he uses a couple of different pronouns. You might have noticed that sometimes he uses the pronoun we, And sometimes he uses the pronoun you. So, for example, he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were the first to set our hope on uh, in Christ. And then he says to the Ephesians, in him you also, when you had heard the truth and believed in him, you were also marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. So what is going on here? Well, if you remember the sermon last week, you might remember that Paul had a unique mission that was impossible for the other apostles. His mission was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, 
to people who are not Jewish. Originally, of course, the movement that followed Jesus Christ was entirely Jewish. It was based in Jerusalem. But when Christ came to Paul in a vision, he said, Paul, I want you to take my gospel out to the rest of the world. And as a result, all of the churches that Paul founded had lots of Gentiles, which is a wonderful thing. It's a radical thing. It was a new thing that God was doing, bringing all of these different people together. It was also a really hard thing because diversity is not easy. Paul has to explain salvation to to these Gentiles who had no training in the biblical story. I mean, with Jews, at least they knew the Bible. They knew the stories of what God had done in the past. They knew the prophecies, and so it was relatively simple for them to connect those stories with what God was doing in Christ. Gentiles had none of that. And so Paul has to start from the very basics. Here is the story of what God has done in history God came to us first, us Jews. That's we, that's the pronoun we. God made a covenant with us through Abraham to be his chosen people. We were also the first to believe in Christ because as I just said, all of the original followers of Jesus were Jewish. And then he uses a new pronoun, you. You Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, that Christ is the Messiah who was raised from the dead, and you believed this, guess what? You entered into this covenant. And so now we are God's chosen people together. That, according to Paul, is the story of salvation. I mean, it might not seem so radical for us now because we live in a world that has been shaped by 2,000 years of Christianity, but for these Gentiles, it was a completely new conception of God that was very hard for them to understand. And that brings us to point number two, Why would this story have been difficult for them? To understand that, I'm going to go back to something else Paul said in another letter. In his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, Paul was explaining why it's hard for both Jews and Greeks to understand the gospel. And this is what he said, Jews demand signs and Greeks want wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jews demand signs, Gentiles desire wisdom, and the cross challenges both of these groups. Well, let's look at the Gentiles, since that's the people who are receiving this letter. They want wisdom, and to them the cross seems foolish. And here's where I can get to the weird title of my sermon today. It's a theological term that I I would encourage you, if if you like it, to start using it because it's a really wonderful term. It's called the scandal of particularity. Will that fit into your normal everyday conversation? I don't know. The scandal of particularity. And what this means basically is that God comes to certain people and not others. You see why that might be scandalous? It means God came to the Jews and made a covenant with them. He did not come to a tribe in Australia. He did not come to a village in the Americas. He did not come to a family in China. He came to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to save the world through you, just you. You, a single person. I'm going to save the world through you. Centuries later, he came to a poor Jewish teenager named Mary And he said, I'm coming into the world in a new way through your womb. One woman, just one, in one particular 
time in one particular place. And then he did that, being born as a Jewish man in Palestine, in a very particular place, in a very particular time. And to reinforce that particularity, this man who was born of Mary would later go on to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. One man, one particular man. Can you see why this might have been scandalous to these Gentiles? I mean, I think probably for the same reason it's scandalous to us right now. I can kind of sense people hearing this right now are a little, getting a little uneasy. That doesn't seem fair. Why would God appear to certain people and not others? It just it violates our sense of fairness. It violates our sense of democracy. It doesn't seem right. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about the scandal of particularity. He said, to be quite frank, we do not like the idea of a chosen people. We are Democrats by birth and education. We should prefer to think that all nations and all individuals start level in the search for God, or even that all religions are equally true. It must be admitted that Christianity makes no concessions to this point of view. Because Christianity does not tell of a human search for God, but of something done by God for people. And the way in which it is done is selective, is undemocratic to the highest degree. After the knowledge of God had been universally lost, one man from the whole earth, Abraham, is chosen. He is separated from his natural surroundings, sent into a strange country, and made the ancestor of a nation who are to carry the knowledge of the one true God. Within this nation, there is a further selection. Some die in the desert, some remain in Babylon. There is a further selection still. The process grows narrower and narrower. It sharpens at last until one small, bright point, like the head of a spear, it is a Jewish girl at her prayers. All humanity, so far as it concerns redemption, has narrowed to that. That's C.S. Lewis. He says the redemption of the whole world rests with one Jewish girl alone at her prayers. He's talking about Mary, of course. His point is that it doesn't seem fair that God would choose particular, play, particular people and not other people. I'll give you another reference. In the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, there's a song that's sung by the Judas character, and I think it gets right to this point. He says, he's talking, he's singing to Jesus, and he says, every time I look at you, I don't understand. Why did you have to choose such a backward time in such a strange land? And that gets it, exactly. Why did God choose this place and this time and these people? I mean, this idea of particularity, it was hard for the Ephesians because it actually went directly against Greek wisdom. The greatest Greek philosopher was Aristotle, and he had an idea of God. He called it the unmoved mover. God was this distant, impersonal force. He created the universe, and then he sat removed from it. He had no contact with human beings. Why did Aristotle envision such a God? Because it makes so much sense. It's logical. You could even call it wise. And I would say that many people today, including many Christians, unconsciously assume that God is 
like Aristotle described him to be. God is kind of like a distant energy field. He's a vague presence behind the scenes. I, you know, I think he's real, but I don't think he has much to do with me. Of course, this idea is appealing. An energy field sounds vaguely scientific, so it makes it sort of seem plausible to us. An energy field is, is democratic. It's available to everybody all over the earth. It's comforting because an energy field can't challenge you in any way. An energy field doesn't really do anything. You seek it out, but of course there's no risk of an energy field bothering you. There's just one problem. That is not the way the Bible describes God. The God that we encounter in Scripture enters the world in these particular subjective ways. He goes to specific people and he chooses particular events according to his free will, not anybody else's. And of course, that means we have no idea what God's going to do next because he is free and the things that he tends to choose are so unexpected. And that is why the Christian faith had to be revealed. It had to be shown to people. It could never have been guessed. Think about this. You could put the wisest Greek philosophers in a room together and say, I'm going to give you 10 years to describe God, and I bet they would come up with some beautiful ideas about the eternal nature and symmetry of this divine presence that permeates all reality. But you know what none of them would come up with? The cross. They would never guess that the God of creation would condescend to be born into this earth and then would give up power and die at the hand of the Romans and would rise again not to take revenge but to forgive the very people who killed him. That tells us that the story of salvation is not the product of a human mind. A human mind would never come up with this. This is truth that has to be revealed from God And that is why Paul says in that letter to the Corinthians, he says, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. But what does it all mean? That's point number three. Let's say that you accept that this amazing story of salvation is not something that a human mind could have imagined, and therefore it must come from God. What does it matter? Why should the Greeks have believed it? Why should you believe it? Well, here's what I want to suggest to you. In the particularity of God, this scandalous way that God works in the specific historical lives of certain individuals, if you know how that works, it will change your life. Because what God shows us through these particular decisions is the nature of real love. And here's what I mean. Love is always particular. You don't love ideas. You don't love principles. You love people. And you don't love people in general. I mean, I think some people say that, oh, I have a love for humanity, but I don't think that really means anything. Love is not real until you love a specific person. And specific people, of course, are the very definition of particularity because everybody's unique. I mean, just a little while ago, we baptized Karsten. Think about this. There have been billions of human beings on earth, but there has never been a Karsten. And there will never again be a Karsten. Karsten is utterly, irreducibly unique. He is utterly particular. Now, Gabe and Sarah, as his parents, are learning what it means to love. And here's what Scripture is teaching us. They will not learn about love by meditating about love as an abstract principle. 
They will not learn about love by reading a book about love. They will learn about love by loving this child and their other children, Annika and Nicolina. And through their love for these particular specific human beings in this specific place and in this specific time, they'll learn about love for everybody else. And that's why the Christian story that seems so scandalously exclusive is actually universal because real love always starts with the particular person and then it opens up to the universal. You first love people in their uniqueness and then you begin to know what love is really like and you also begin to understand that God, who seems to be playing favorites, is actually saving the world. I want to say a couple more things about this. You can't love someone if you stereotype them. And I say this because I think that this is a problem in our society right now on, on both sides of the political spectrum, on the right and the left. On, the, on one hand, you might have people who are bigots. On the other hand, you have people who practice identity politics. Both of them, I think, miss what this story is telling us because they don't see people in their uniqueness. They assign people to groups. Who is that person? Oh, that black person? No. That's John. Who is that person? Oh, you mean the lesbian over there? No. That's Jill. Yes, it is true that she's a lesbian, but if you want to know her and love her, that comes second. First, she is a unique human being, a unique child of God. The moment the particular gets overshadowed by the stereotype, you stop actually being able to see the person as who they are. And here's the amazing thing. The same is true with God. Who is God? Oh, I guess he's an energy field. No. He's the one who met Moses in the burning bush on Mount Horeb on a particular day in history. He's the angel who wrestled with Jacob on a specific rock by a specific river at a specific day in history. Who is God? He's the person who came to Hagar in the desert when she had been rejected by Sarah. He comforted her at a particular place in a particular time in history. Who is God? He's a tender child born of Mary in a particular place on a particular day. He lived as a particular man. He died a very specific death and he was raised on a particular day in history and he was seen by particular people. What I'm saying is that God is just as much a unique personality as all of you are. And therefore, God is not known by universal principles. Do you know what he's known by? Stories. Isn't that interesting? Because how do you really get to know a person and their uniqueness? You don't put them in categories. You tell stories about them. Let me tell you a story about what this person is like. That's how you get to know who a person is. Who is God? Let me tell you the story of how he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Who is God? Let me tell you about when he met the Samaritan woman at the well and that time he went to a wedding with his mother where he turned water into wine and that time he agonized in a particular garden in Jerusalem and was tried by a real man in history, Pontius Pilate. You want to know him? I'll tell you stories about what he did, about where he was, about what he said, and those stories are going to bring you closer to the real presence of God than any universal principles. And that's why Paul, getting back to the 
very beginning of this sermon. That's why Paul starts this letter by telling the Ephesians a story about what God did. You want to know about God? First, he came to us, the Jews. First, he came to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to save the world through you. And in the fullness of time, that's exactly what he's done, because in Christ, he did another very specific thing. He made a way for all people to enter into his love. And that, of course, includes everybody. Because everyone is invited to get to know this strange, unexpected, irreducible God. This God that nobody, no philosopher could ever have guessed. Who loves all of you in your uniqueness and who in his great mercy laid down his life for every single one of you. Let's end in prayer. God, your wonders never cease to amaze. We stand in awe of your freedom in the unexpected ways that you bring us into your presence. We pray that you would help us to not objectify people, but instead to love them as the unique individuals they are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.